Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry, joined by my co-host, Taylor Atkins. And as always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's episode, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar a month there, or if you can't do that, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Today's episode will be a guest spot we did for the Zero Books YouTube page, where we were joined by Craig and Adam of Acid Horizon. We looked at Chapter 3 of Leotard's Libidinal Economy, titled The Desire Named Marx. All right, welcome back to Zero Books, everyone. This is Craig from the Asset Horizon podcast, and today we're doing the Post-Capitalist Desire Reading Group, the lectures of Mark Fisher, and we've landed upon the lecture where he talks about Jean-Francois Lyotard's A Desire Named Marx, or I'm sorry, The Desire Named Marx. And what we've been doing is rather than simply going over the lectures themselves, we're doing a deep dive on the text. And today I brought in the experts. And I say that they are the experts because they have a seven-part podcast series entitled Wicked Leotard that actually goes into this text quite deeply. I don't know if we'll be able to recapitulate the entirety of that here today, but I think these young gentlemen will do a great service to the theory-interested community and uh, give us their insights and explication of the text. So without further ado, let me just introduce to you the hosts, the co-hosts of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. I have Cooper Cherry and Taylor Adkins. And so maybe starting with Cooper, can you just tell us about the podcast, your interests, how you got into this, and just let everyone get to know who you are. Sure. So I was an English major in college, and we had to take a theory course. And so I got some exposure to a little bit of a Kristeva through that, Derrida, Foucault, and I've sort of been hooked ever since. And uh, for the longest time, I always had aspirations of becoming a filmmaker, but, you know, working a nine to five job and achieving that is, was rather tough. So I thought, you know, hey, I can do a podcast. It's just going to be me and one other person. There's a lot less moving parts. You know, this will be an avenue for me to sort of chase after that same desire, if you will. And so I started the podcast originally with not necessarily focused on on philosophy strictly, but over the years, I think that really became the focus. And then I just happened to be lucky and meet Taylor, perhaps thanks to the Deluz bot on Twitter, maybe. I'm not <laughs> even sure at this point. Either that or name searching Deluz on Twitter. And so we worked together since Taylor, you know, he had translated the Machinic Unconscious from Guattari. So we did a series on that with a couple of friends of ours. And then after that, we tackled libidinal economy. And I think the libidinal economy sessions really solidified kind of 
our little assemblage and the flow and the way that we kind of work. And, you know, it's just really grown from there. I mean, Taylor's obviously a tremendous addition. I can't, you know, I wouldn't be able to do, to do a lot of the things that he does. So, you know, I kind of sit back <laughs> and take a more like executive producer role these days, but I'll let maybe Taylor can pick up there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we did, you know, we did Machinic Unconscious and there was a kind of interesting coincidence because Coop had renamed his podcast to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour before he met me. So it's not my fault if people may think that. And we did Libinal Economy, as we pointed out. We've done Baudrillard's Symbolic Exchange and Death, where he gets to clap back a little bit at Leotard from some of the shit talk in this chapter. And we've done some stuff on Anti-Oedipus. So, so a lot of the post-68, you know, Libinal French anti-Hegelian. Trilogy, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm happy to be a co-host with Coop and still translating French philosophy, as you guys may know, you know, Guattari, Simon Down, stuff like that. And so, uh, yeah, I'm happy. I love revisiting this text because it's, it's a wild ride. So it'll be, I think it'll be fun to, to sort of talk about it. Yeah. And to let everyone know, if you have read Felix Guattari's Chaosophy or Gilbert Simondon's Individuation of Forms of Light, Taylor's the translator. I remember working with the Guattari text in grad school, seeing the translator's name right on the cover there. And now this guy's my friend, thanks to the pandemic. You know how it goes. And also in the room right now, for folks who are watching, these are the patrons of Zero Books. This will be put on our main feed. And so I will have them maybe at various interims in the this discussion perhaps ask questions via the chat or what have you um and i just want to say to anyone who's interested in this series we have all of these things on the zero patreon for patrons basically the lectures that we've covered so far so if you want to become a patron please do you can take advantage of all that's behind the patreon wall and also we have adam from asset horizon with us here today whom we all know. And so he needs no introduction, so he will get none. <laughs> with that said, let's just get right into the text right now. Here's the way that I want to frame this. So there's this term libidinal economy. And this particular discussion, this text is now appearing on a channel that has a following of folks who would call themselves Marxists. And Jean-Francois Lyotard is unabashed in his critique or quasi-critique, if you will. I mean, it certainly is a critique of Marxism, but something else is happening in this text. Also, Lyotard is somebody that we identify with the movement of postmodernism, although the theoretical labor that's undertaken in this text, I don't think can be easily crunched underneath that term. And I think it removes some of the seriousness of what's happening in this, in this text if we reduce what he's doing to a notion of postmodernism. So maybe either to Cooper or Taylor, I don't know who wants to start first, but maybe you could just sort of frame the importance of this text you know, in this tra tradition, especially with respect to the term libidinal economy. Like, what does that mean? Is there a way to summarize that somewhat neatly? And how does this all bring to bear on an analysis of Marx and or Marxism? I mean, in terms of the importance of this text, no offense to Leotard, but first of all, we know that he renounced the text, right? And so the fact that it has a, I mean, even a text like Anti-Oedipus doesn't really get talked about as much as compared to A Thousand Plateaus. And, you know, Baudrillard's text, Symbolic Exchange Death, doesn't get as much play as his writings on simulation, simulacra. So the importance of the text writ large may be insignificant for the Anglophone reception, but it may 
have had some, as he kind of points out, like he, he knows that in writing this text, you'll be scrutinized by, by Marxist politicians and all of the whites on the left or something like this. Like he knows he's writing stuff that's a little bit inflammatory. As for libidinal economy and it's the way in which Leotard is putting forth the hypothesis that all political economy is libidinal economy. I mean, I think that it is, you know, obviously in the matrix of this, I mean, Craig, you pointed out the sort of Nietzscheanism of this text, but there's in the very core of it, a kind of rethinking of Freud along with Marx. And, you know, we may be used to this today with reading someone like Zizek, who talks through about how Marxism and psychoanalysis are both sort of practically invested in their theoretical enterprise. And so I think that with libidinal economy as a designator for discussing how, say, I mean, Freud himself has an economic model of how the psychical apparatus works in terms of binding energies and, and sort of dealing with the influx of energies that, that the stimuli that affect, you know, the, the organism from the outside, but with the drives having their own pulsional energy, that's not something we can heal ourselves away from. That's something someone we can like take flight from. And so Freud has a whole elaborate discussion of how the psychical apparatus is able to manage those influxes from the drives. And a lot of the times it can lead to all kinds of complicated inner workings, like through repression, et cetera, right? We don't have to go into Freud deeply here, but just to lay the background that insofar as Freud is sort of coined the term libido to discuss this energy of the drives as sexual in nature, there's a sense in which Leotard in discussing, for example, we need to look at Marx, not just as this, in taking, again, another critical position out of the thousand critique, we need to look at aspects that drive Marx and his sort of, you know, in, indefinite postponement of dealing with the flows of capital, et cetera. I mean, Leotard is trying to propose that the sort of the economy of desire is never sort of extricated or pure or somehow dissociated from political economy, that they're inextricably scrambled, constitutionally scrambled without it being a sort of contamination or corruption. That's just at the very basis of not only any political system, any political economic system whatsoever, but particularly capitalism and that we need to come to grips with the very fact that in capitalism, there are, there are these effects of desire. There are these effects of enjoyment that to deny is to kind of put us in an untenable position. One of the things that this text attempts to avoid is this idea that theory needs to be replaced, that in the absence or collapse of a particular theory, that we should fulfill the impulse to somehow replace that theory with another one. And Leotard, he becomes what we might call in the deluso gatarian parlance as a writing machine. Not everything that he's doing here is descriptive in the theoretical sense. One might argue that what he's trying to do is to instigate a series of affects using language, kind of like a poiesis or a poetics, but also it's muddled with some theoretical conceptual terminology 
if you will. And one of the predominant figures that, that he puts forward is this notion of Marx as being this bifurcated, actually bisexual, if you will, figure of little girl Marx and old man Marx, who represent these two poles of desire that, that Marx himself is enmeshed within in his theoretical pursuit of capitalism, in his ambition to describe what capitalism is. And maybe I'll just turn the question to Cooper. You can grab onto any of that, but I know you you like talking about the writing of Lyotard himself. Maybe you can sort of just address that bundle of concerns and questions that I've brought up. Sure. I mean, there's this is a multiplicity here in the sense that so much is going on. And within the text, it's sort of like a you might even consider this to be a sort of a literary crit- literary criticism of the writing of Marx himself in a certain sense. You may even consider this to be a libidinal horror novel, even. I like to borrow this quote from Guattari about, I think it was the interpretation of dreams being a great work of literature. And so I, I apply that to, uh, to libidinal economy. But I, briefly, I just want to add, I want to go back a little bit and just add to what Taylor was saying, because I think one you know big question that this text, I think, is wrestling with at the macro level is, you know, why has capitalism persisted, right? Like, why? what happened within the Soviet Union? What happened within 68? Why do people, I mean, the question of anti-Oedipus, why do people desire their own servitude, I think, is really the big question in the background of this text. Lyotard himself being a very, you know, a highly militant guy, he was one of the most sort of boots on the ground, so so to speak, folks, him and Baudrillard, actually, which is kind of kind of funny in comparison to someone like Deleuze, who I don't think was ever quite so militant. Mm-hmm. So just to set and then again, you know, just for some additional context, if you go back and read the works of Freud, you know, Taylor and I, we just recorded yesterday an episode on uh, what is it, Morning in Melancholy. And, you know, Freud uses the language of libidinal economy. He uses the phrase of, you know, dream work, et cetera. So this is very much a sort of model or like a paradigm that Freud is very focused on in a lot of the case studies going back to things like, you know, the rat man, wolf man, et cetera. Like so many of these case studies are dealing with this idea of libidinal economy. And Leotard in this text, I think, kind of is doing more sort of a true return to Freud to mock the Lacanian claim to being a return to Freud. I think Leotard is more faithful to Freud than he is to something like what Lacan is doing mm. in particular. But yeah, I mean, I think yeah. this is a text that you must read once to just let the aesthetics of it sort of wash over you and appreciate, and then perhaps go back and dig into the theoretical angles of it, which again, and this is a very slippery text. This is a hard text because of this sort of aesthetic that Leotard is mobilizing, I think, does make, you know, there's a literary sort of style that I think sort of obscures some of the ideas. And you can really have to be very aware of some of the more subtle points that he's drawing forth. So I hope that helps a bit. Yeah. So so piggyback off of Cooper, just for a second, for the little girl marks and the old man marks, you know, obviously that we could see how Leotard is trying to sort of look at the earlier writings of Marx, particularly like he'll cite in the citations, the notes on the dissertation. So some of the earliest writings on Marx versus some of these older, later texts. So that's, there's a chronological division that he makes there. But I've been trying to think of these two figures as a kind of, of 
perceptual or uh, a conceptual personae, right? That the little girl Marx is representative of this sort of desire, this fantasy of a pre-capitalist social formation where there say there's not the realm of capitalist exploitation. There's this fantasy of a sort of undivided unitary body of the worker that hasn't been parceled out into the sort of polymorphous perverse flows of capital, that there is some sort of, if you will, a, a kind of ideal of a sort of unalienated nature that would be this organic totality that 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 Marx, that the later Marx seems to be tasked with giving birth to in this concept of the proletariat, right? As this organic body for the, uh, for the little girl Marx and this tension between the two, right? This tension between trying to give birth to this proletariat body and this sort of quasi-religious Christian persecutory type of metaphor that Leotard is both evoking and rejecting would be sort of forestalled and postponed by this indefinite meticulous investigation that the book of capital sort of leads this, the old man marks down the road of. And so it's this tension between the two of trying to negotiate between sort of justifying a, a, a sort of almost a nostalgia, if you will, that is in this, but Leotard specifically locates it in this notion of a genitality, right? That we'll see later in the text evolve into this notion of capitalism as universal prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. And this is precisely what is supposed to be rejected and yet fascinates the old man Marx, right? And so I think it's the tension between those two conceptual personae that Leotard is trying to navigate this, this desire named Marx. One of the claims that's threaded through this entire, you know, critique of Marx, if you will, even though he shies away from that term, is that the presupposition or the presumption that attends to this will to return to this inorganic body, this sort of pre-capitalist social formation, is one that's both racist and imperialist in its in its origin, because it presumes, for example, under capitalist relations, we have something like a split between the conscious and unconscious, that we have something like a split between productive and non-productive spheres. However, it's the case that if we were to go, for example, to non-state societies, ordinarily called primitive, that the, these folks don't have it. They don't have an unconscious in the Freudian sense of things. And this is a theme that not only gets you know, iterated maybe for the first time in the 18th and 19th century anthropologies or proto-anthropologies, but gets carried over maybe into the work of, you know, Pierre Claster and some of the other French anthropologists. And it appears in the philosophical writings of Bataille, Baudrillard, but most notably in Marcel Mauss. So there's an inherent critique of all that's happening in what we would call the post-structuralist movement and all of those philosophers who are influenced by Mauss. But it's only Baudrillard who gets kind of pegged with this. They do brush by Bataille and, and so forth. And I mean, even Deleuze and Guattari are guilty of this to some extent, but may, maybe either one of you could unpack that a little bit. Like well, what's happening with Lyotard and Baudrillard? Was there beef in real life? Does the beef go beyond this text alone? What's happening there? I mean, I, in terms of their biographical beef, I'm not sure. Leotard talks about Deleuze and Guattari and Baudrillard as brothers, mm. right? 
but he is particularly, if you will, he's particularly biting when it comes to Baudrillard. And I think that Baudrillard's, you know, the text that he brings up is the mirror of production, which would have been in 72 and also the, towards the critique of the political economy of the sign, which I think is a collection of essays from the same year. And I think that what Leotard is seeing in Poach is a sibling rivalry. I mean, literally he calls him a brother, right? Before tearing him a new asshole. But the sibling rivalry is over the way in which Freudianism or Lacanianism and Marxism can sort of work together. And I think Leotard shows a kind of incredulence towards Baudrillard. And the one main thing that he really points out that he will follow Baudrillard along to a certain point, except that Baudrillard is trying to stick to a kind of category of truth, which for Leotard, in terms of, if you want to call it his postmodernism or his sort of belief in the downfall of meta narratives, he's sort of, he's given up that, that, that type of critical stance where we sort of have this nostalgia about reasserting truth or holding on to unity, holding on to a teleological idea of finality, holding on to a kind of pedagogical ideal of a kind of Socratic method. He's, he sees all of these as a way of postponing sort of the decadence of values that Leotard, I think, is wanting to accelerate, just to use that catchword. And Baudrillard's sort of dabbling into the ethnographic sphere, I think is where he sees some of the resonances in the in Marx's desire to kind of theorize, whether it be a primitive communism or whether it be a kind of, you know, a, a type of Rousseauistic utopian vision of a good, you know, noble savage that, that has the sort of drive to rebel against, you know, mastery or ward off the state, as Plaster and Deleuze and Guattari would say. His critique of, his mention of anti-Oedipus in this chapter is a little oblique, but I think that, you know, whereas Deleuze and Guattari might not say so strongly like Baudrillard that the primitive state society, the primitive sort of anti-state societies have no unconscious, they do seem to say that they are particularly effective in, in the fact that they not only ward off Oedipus, but Oedipus doesn't grow on that soil. So they do still have this kind of idealized vision, if you will. And whether or not they do look at different field studies to kind of show how there is with the shaman sort of working through with the group, there's a kind of schizoanalytic collective vision of working through problems that are specifically you know, interiorize in the individual a la Oedipus. So they, they do try to bring in some backup for their claims, but you could make an analogy that they have a similar move as Baudrillard. It's not as strong. I don't think they would go so far as to say there's no unconscious for individuals in primitive society, but they do seem to say that Oedipus doesn't grow on that ground, that it's really with sort of the development of capitalism, colonialism, et cetera, that we see Oedipus kind of rising out of this this fertile soil once capital becomes filiative right i think that's the terminology right yeah you know we had just recently somewhat recently read the nomadology plateau and Deleuze and Gattari's a thousand plateaus as well as the apparatus of capture and they spill quite a bit of ink in readdressing up pierre claster's theory of the state what pierre claster the concern that he addresses is how is it the case that what we call primitive societies create all of these sort of social mechanisms to ward off the oncoming of what would become the despotic state 
something that we might see under feudalism, for example, or ultimately the capitalist state. And the epistemological hurdle that's there is, well, if you have all these mechanisms in place, how is it that you know what it is that you're warding off if it doesn't already exist? And I wondered if to some extent, and Taylor, I know you're pretty fluent in all of the texts that we're dealing with here today. Does Deleuze and Guattari, is their work in A Thousand Plateaus somewhat of a response or maybe a repost, maybe even a slight vindication of what happens in Anti-Oedipus against what Leotard is doing? Or do they make an address of this text at all with respect to the anthropological dimension of both their works? I mean, not that I know of directly. I think that what's interesting about A Thousand Plateaus is so much of what was already written by the time that Antiedipus comes out. Initially, after its publication, Leotard writes this long essay sort of reflecting on Antiedipus that is that 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 gives it a, his own spin, but stays pretty faithful to it. And the mention of Antiedipus here is so slight that it's hard to see how they would have reacted without without sort of really devoting some time to his text. And they do even cite, though, a, an earlier work from Leotard, Discourse Figure mm-hmm. in Antiedipus, where they kind of praise it for being one of the most, one of the first systematics of the signifier. And I think that type of work is what interests them because for them, it's the, you know, it's law, lack, signifier that are the three sort of a pronged approach to, to sort of making disjunctions exclusive and making connections restrictive. Basically all the different types of parallel, the sort of illegitimate uses of the unconscious in the extensity that they critique. So they see in Leotard a, a definitely a brother and a colleague and a, a co-collaborator a in that sense. But in terms of, but I do know that Baudrillard definitely reacts to this text in Symbolic Exchange and Death. But I think that he's a little, you know, he's a little less polemical about it, which is surprising given (laughs) about his personality. You know, you brought, you asked about biographical remarks and, you know, Baudrillard was kind of famous for making a nuisance of himself in, in whatever group meetings and communist party meetings and whatever, he kind of made a nuisance of himself. So, you know. But Leotard seems like the evil one in <laughs> this text, you know, it's, but we all have public, we all have different public personas and different writing personas. Um, in terms of the Claster, just really quickly, like they do dedicate a section of A Thousand Plateaus to Claster. And it would have been right after his untimely death in a car accident. And they, they remain faithful to a lot of what they say about him in Anti-Oedipus, but they still kind of designate this impasse or this sort of maybe slippage in his work that could, even if it seems to mobilize so much against this notion that pre-state societies somehow evolve in this natural light of history towards capitalism, even though classers are clear about that in, in many places, they still detect a kind of, if you will, a, a hinge in his work that might let that kind of Hegelian history, the philosophy of history slip back in. Mm. We've been talking a lot about Baudrillard, and I think my role in this discussion is to listen as the listener who maybe isn't familiar with all of these figures. But right now I'm thinking about symbolic exchange and death, which Cooper, he came on our show to talk about. And that was that text was written after libidinal economy, but it seems to recapitulate at least some of the themes that Leotard is going after here. I'm thinking particularly this notion of the order of simulacra. And I've always seen that 
particular chapter of that book as mirroring the logic of somebody like Bataille, for example, even to a certain extent, Dualism Gattari, this kind of stagist approach to, you know, how a mode of production evolves. What is Lyotard's critique of Baudrillard and how does Baudrillard come back on it? Let's see. So Baudrillard, I mean, the critique from Lyotard, I think is, you know, it's the racism of looking back and sort of fetishizing the pre-capitalist formation and sort of like this lost reel, like this almost like a cat, kind of like a castration complex, to be honest, in this, in that sense of, you know, like this sort of, yeah, the sort of like lost object, if you will. And so I think maybe that's where the biggest critique comes in terms of Leotard. And I don't re really recall the clapback from Baudrillard specifically. I mean, Taylor, you might, I don't know if you recall that either. It's been a little bit since we've engaged with that text. I mean, the, I, my bias reading is that Baudrillard is still not going to give up the category of the true. Mm. I mean, it makes him more of a philosopher than the kind of sophistry, if you will, that, that Leotard is backing up here. But it's a sophistry with a purpose, right? It's yeah. a sophistry that is saying, you know, if we take critique seriously and understand critique as placing ourselves within the field of the critique, in some sense, we're we are, we're sort of within the thick of things and we are judge, jury, and executioner at the same time, which is why Leotard, even when he will say, I'm going to break my rule and be critical here, you know, as he says in this chapter, for the most part, in this period of his writing, he is very much wanting to forego the, both the critical position that would move by way of negativity and move by way of oppositionality right, which is sort of all in the currents of anti-Galianism at the time. But he also is a little bit wary of one of the things he critiques sort of Baudrillard for is, unlike Marx, who makes, who sort of takes the proletariat as this negative of the modern capitalist formation, Baudrillard takes the good savage or the good hippie as sort of these positive entities. And Leotard sees this as just kind of inverting the the position yeah. it's really staying within the same system so leotard is very much i mean that's part of the sophistry is both announcing a critical negative modality and yet also being very wary of simply a sort of positive affirmative position and i think that is what makes this writing of this period sort of hard to if you will reconcile with say a later text like the different or even to reconcile with on the one hand, you know, the kind of current of Marxism that you find dominantly with the Althusserians at the time, but also so not just Baudrillard's affirmation of whether it be the good savage or the good hippie, but, but specifically Deleuze's affirmationism, which sometimes mm -hmm. is a target. So Leotard is kind of really going, you know, he's really going, kind of going off into un untrod territories in this. And that for reasons of his own, who knows what led him to this point where he felt he had to renounce this this type of, of discourse, but we know that he did eventually. And yet at the same time, I think that's what gives this text both this poetic affective power and its, its frustrating aspect in terms of trying to pin down what Leotard is doing, but also kind of gives us this means of finding within ourselves the way in which we position ourselves libidinally, politically, theoretically, it forces us to be a bit harsh on ourselves and unroot those that that drive to 
if you will, halt the dispositive of our, of our desires and take up a position, literally like invest in a position in ways that, that, that could be counterproductive. Yeah, I think the, this now introduces us to a sort of new part of this discussion, which is some of the specific politics that are either being attacked, intimated. While reading this, I'm trying to get a sense of Leotard's intended political program, which clearly the manner of writing here is not aimed at that. I mean, he comes right out and says that he doesn't want to replace theory. But the kinds of attacks that are made, Taylor, as we were talking about, there's definitely a very strong Nietzschean thread here. But then there are things that tend to counter that, like, like, like you said, this attack on the affirmationism, which initially I thought that was all about Deleuze and Gattari and the tendency that they birthed. But then, of course, you know, there is that aspect of Baudrillard's writing that valorizes the, the good hippie anyway. But then, you know, a, as I'm reading it and as you get closer to the end, now it's there that I start to see overlaps with aha. I can imagine Nick Land reading this part. Now that Marx has been, you know, thoroughly assailed by the midpoint of this essay, you kind of get a flavor for what might be part of Leotard's positive political program. I, I mean, there's an aspect of this text that might be, you know, amenable to anarchist sensibilities. But I think by the end of it, we get onto something that maybe is more akin to the accelerationist political tendency. Maybe, Adam, you can say a few things at this point. Well, what are your impressions? I mean, th this text, I mean, it is, it is treading sort of, you know, what the time was hitherto unknown territories of thinking about desire that ultimately a lot of, lots of kinds of forms of political economy have ignored. But in a way, it's, tacking, it's tackling Marxism at where it's the most at home, at Capital Volume 1 itself. It's a great text about describing the experience of Capital Volume 1 because you know, what's the least convincing, most hurried, least developed part of Capital Volume 1? It's the chapter on the expropriation of expropriators, the chapter on the actual revolution. He mm. writes, think it's quite short. He gets through it almost as if he just wants to get rid of it so he can go back to doing the real fascinating stuff about how this global machine has conquered the world and sub submitted us all to it and you know, these most magical transformations of value. And I always read this text along the lines of one of my favorite songs of recently it's a klezmer song by a guy called daniel khan and it's called the butcher's share and the idea is you know, under existing there's blood and guts encoded in the valley of the web but you've got to give the butcher's share the idea that we're all kind of constantly uh, being created as consumers by the products because capital the exchange value there's blood and guts encoded in the very exchange value mm. and i think what this text does is it adds on the third Thing. It's blood and guts, but also desire and specifically enjoyment. And mm. um, this is a great treatise on treaties. <laughs> By I mean treat, I don't mean I don't mean uh, like I mean I mean this can of Mountain Dew Barger Blast. This is an entire system of cruelty <laughs> wrapped in this. This is blood, guts, and also enjoyment. And I think that's the important thing here. I mean, think about what Mark Fisher's getting out of this in the post-capitalist style lectures. It's most part, for the most part, it's the idea that we can't think about a non-alienated region, this outside that we already have. We have to think from the perspective of being totally immersed in capital. And I think this text is very cathartic to read, not only because it's a great reading of Marx, the desire of Marx that produces this text, because it's more interesting to see this great capitalist machine and all of its 
It's you know, it's all its weird, mad, godlike tendencies that is to think about, you know, capital is the sexiest part of anti-capitalism. I, thought, I mean, that's the socialist realism had to kind of come come on the scene to counter this in Soviet art because, you know, it, it, the the downtrodden coming together and killing the thing. It wasn't as it wasn't as sexy. <laughs> there wasn't as much of a making it with death. You know, it's there wasn't much of an inner experience to the proletarian life because in the whole point of being an anti-capitalist, the proletarian life is shit. And we don't want we don't want to emancipate the proletariat. We want to emancipate them from being proletarians because proletarianization is a process, not an identity and status. So I think this text is brutal for its sake of its honesty in terms of what reading a text like Capital Volume 1 is like. And it also, I think, has that necessary provocation of more than the door node where we just, you know, complicit and it's like this tragic function there's no ethical consumption under capitalism but it's <laughs> but at the same time it's all about no there's also enjoyment and it's it's sort of text you turn to i mean having said that the section on the enjoyment of capitalism he's going off of marx's capital volume one so the, the workers he's talking about are the english i mean maybe we could just restrict this to the english themselves as the only ones who enjoy capitalism but i think the enjoyment is because there's no non-alienated region, the English enjoyment is precedes capitalism in many such ways. That's why there's a fucking, that's why people have been queuing for 24 hours to see a flag over a box. <laughs> people have been, 55 people have been taken off to get in a giant, they could have ticketed the entire thing, by the way. This queue is completely unnecessary to see the fucking, you know, <laughs> I've stopped myself there from saying something on a, a live stream about that lady. The performance of suffering detaches pleasure from enjoyment. And because, I mean, the idea, the idea I think this is a distinguished pleasure and enjoyment here in terms of how Leotard's doing it, because not the proletarians as they take pleasure in capital, but there was a kind of enjoyment in the idea that you know, you're no longer a serf, you're no longer tied to this one shitty piece of land, and maybe you can work your way off it a little bit in a few years. You're not tied to a lord. You are tied to a landlord now, but it's this diffusion, this deterritorialization, this kind of sense of adventure. And of course, we cannot ignore here, or well, I think Leotard maybe risks doing this, the temptations of nationalist ideology. This is why, in many ways, this could be limited to a first worldist view of things. But then again, at the same time, that would also replicate the very criticism he's critiquing by saying, you know, only, only we privileged people are have an unconsciousness because we've been so repressed in, by this Freudian civilization that we can cultivate this inner life. It is all absolutely bullshit. He's trying to navigate, really, Leotard, the barriers between sort of a, a sort of a racialized analysis of the global economy, both in terms of desire and, of course, the exchange of commodities, whilst also avoiding that a kind of specifically left to get kind of racialist racialization, which is the kind of racialization which cites itself as post-racial in relation to what is non-racialized. But in maintaining, in defining itself against non-racial, it still maintains sort of the racialism it disavows. And usually it does this by projecting it onto racialized peoples themselves. I mean, Stern is a great example of this, for example. And he gets that straight from Hegel, the idea that a properly post-racial subject would be the European subject because they've got this tradition of enlightenment that shows them it's all nonsense, whereas only the primitives are racist. That's the joke of it, really. So I think that's the sort of thing that he's trying to navigate. We kind of went past somewhat the comment that I wanted to make, but in, in discussing the idea of enjoyment or jouissance, there's actually a very stark theory of 
the enjoyment of theory as an enterprise or an exercise in this text. This juxtaposition of little girl marks with the old man marks. The old man marks is the one who becomes fascinated with this interminable project of analyzing capital, whose movement and plasticity always outstrips the activity of attempting to encapsulate it in some sort of unitary or final version of itself. And I thought that was really apropos because, I mean, there, there are many senses in which doing theory can kind of fall into this sort of religiosity. I mean, there's this whole tension between theory and praxis, right? But you get a sense in this text that Leotard is valorizing what I call this tensorial movement versus what might be a figural movement. And by figural, the figure of theory as something unitary and final. And this idea of a figure can apply to any such number of things, a state, a god, versus this notion of intensities, which is plastic, it's dynamic, it's in motion. And even though Leotard kind of er he errs on the side of intensity, there are movements in this particular text in general and in this chapter where he is taking this poetic flight that is a manifestation of this privileging of intensity. And then at times, you know, if we're to get into the weeds with the terminology of the ontology of the text, the bar slows down on the libidinal band and he speaks to us in a voice that i mean is obviously and pointedly theoretical but he seems to do a good job i think on his own terms he presents us with something interesting something that that cooper you say is horrific and i want to dig into that because this is kind of a text of horror as you said you know in as much as it's a, a lambasting of marx and marxism cooper if this were a in a horror genre whether it be, I don't know, you know, a slasher film, body horror, you name it. Where do you think uh, Leotard's text, like which category does it fall into for you? I think body horror, absolutely. I mean, the opening of the book itself with the description of basically the human body being, the ascision being created and basically flayed and flattened out in this kind of cosmic, like almost draw an analogy to like this cosmic body of, of Daniel Schraber, for example. But it definitely recalls, I think, you know, something like Hellraiser, at least the very, you know, that opening passage where the lament coordination sort of rips apart. Like it's the little box, right? The box is perhaps a desiring machine or like this intensity that one opens up and it's so overwhelming that it just destroys the physical organic body itself. Mm. So you not only have that to open the text, but I think there is a certain, you know, there's a perhaps, a, I don't know, what's the, who's the guy Gosh, I'm who did like the fly and uh, the recent movie? He always oh, does the body horror. What's his name? Cronenberg, right. Yeah, David Cronenberg. Yeah, so I think there's an element of Cronenberg perhaps, or even maybe something like a zombie film with regard to the way that he treats the description of the English workers enjoying the destruction of their bodies. And this also because of this sort of very pointed critique of like the smooth skinned academic and sort of them being like them being sort of hated and reviled by the proletarian. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the proletarians or, they, you know, this zombie metaphor, you know, they want to eat the brains of these people that they feel, I guess, you know, there's a sort of superiority complex there or something like that. But I actually I see a bit of John Carpenter, too. I mean, the thing I mean, right. Yeah, obvious yeah. go to that's a good call. Yeah. But my take on it is Leotard has in focus the R.J. McCready 
character where they're just completely bedraggled at the end of the film. And they're essentially forced into a position of complete nihilism at the end of the film, destroying themselves. And I think what's happening in, in Leotard's work here is somewhat emblematic of that. But I think, Taylor, you had something to say. It looks like you were chomping at the bit there for a minute. I think that, you know, in terms of this question of horror, one of the things that Leotard seems to be, seems to find horrific in his, in his sort of contribution to theoretical discourse, if we can call this that, he says on the very very last chapter, a few pages from the end, the demand for clarity must be strongly denounced. Now, we know that <laughs> we can see that, right? So the, demand, the demand for clarity must be strongly denounced. It requires the power of he who loves or who speaks over his intensities. The demand for clarity is, it's, it's requiring us to have power over power. It's the power of he who loves or who speaks over his intensity. So hmm. we want to, you know, get your intensities in control, get, you know, master them as Freud might say, right? And he says it demands this, uh, this requirement of power over our intensities. It demands have power, defiant the intense. No, we must receive this demand in terror, flee from it. That's all we can do. It is the first imprint of power on the libidinal band. We say we're incapable of guaranteeing the link between our words, our deeds, our looks, and impulsional sweeps. Hence, no clarity. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. What you demand of us theoreticians is that we constitute ourselves as identities and become responsible ones at that. But if we are sure of anything, it is that this operation of exclusion is a sham, that no one produces incandescences, and that they belong to no one, that they have effects but not causes. So I think the horror story for him is this demand for clarity to produce. And I think that one of the things that's so interesting is that as Deleuze kind of showed from the logic of sense is that the genesis of sense kind of is, uh, comes from nonsense. And I think Leotard took that in his own way and kind of ran with it. Just quickly, I want to just mention to go back to land a bit, you can kind of see, I mean, I think his take is that What's really happening is this sort of death drive, this drive towards the inorganic is really like a drive towards the machinic. So there's like a there's perhaps a like Terminator sort of vibe going on here where it's the joy of the enjoyment of the destruction of the body is pointed towards this desire to return to the inorganic and mm. the machinic. This entire discussion of the tendency towards machinic in the death drive frames Fisher's own disagreements with land and somewhat with Leotard. I mean, so you mentioned the Terminator. This is the grounding, the urtext for Fisher's Terminator versus Avatar, in which the main disagreement with Land is that the human face of capital is part of the enjoyment. That to there is no total immersion. There is no there is no machinic outside. There is only there is only design which requires this human face. It requires these rations of subjectivity, which Deleuze and Guattari talk about. There's always a minimum level of subjectivity. It's just a matter of degree. Although, of course. The great zero was always an ideal for them. But I wonder if Mark Fisher did anything of that whole idea of the zero. Wait, what channel are we on? What channel are we on again? So, <laughs> I mean, this is where the zero this is the zero. This is the zero from zero books. Um, How did I miss this? I feel like such an idiot. <laughs> I thought we had talked about that, though. We had I don't about remember talking about the, this. The great zero. Well, that's repression. <laughs> go, go on, Adam. Go on, Adam. I do want to add something quickly, too, just in the sense of like, the lack, I mean, what Land says is there's no outside to capital. Any any attempt to escape from capital is doing, capital is escape. And so anytime that you're generating any surplus or there's a positive feedback loop that 
is technically capital, which kind of you can sort of see having being sort of simpatico with Leotard. And I think maybe my theory is that what Leotard means relative to this is I think the exchange of women, the appropriation of women as a means of production, right? Because we're talking about libidinal economics. We're talking about the reproduction of the system reproducing, and that being its sort of transcendental goal is the just the continuing of the production of surplus value. Mm-hmm. And the appropriation of women held as a sort of com- – like a reproductive commons is something that has sort of been a, a bulwark of societies for, you know, for the as long as we've been around, perhaps. Yeah, the other point with land too, and I, unfortunately I didn't have time to go back into Fang Numina to take a look at this, is that as I understand it, there is this privileging of a notion of terminal entropy in the form of heat death. And when you look at the what's going on in even Leotard's text, one of the things that he's going after, I think even in his you know, sort of tangential critique of beyond the pleasure principle is that, and Dulles and Gattari do this too, they critique Freud in the same way, is that we perhaps have erroneously have created a conceptual split between life and death in such a way that we could elevate either one of those terms. Whenever I look at, you know, the sort of fate of the work of Nick Land, it's interesting to go back on these influences and and try to tease out those threads like, oh, what about this? We did it with Deleuze and Gattari in our episode with Greg Sadler and the whole notion of the inevitable condensation of subjectivity as a process of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. I wouldn't even say that land was blinkered. I think he willfully ignored that in some sense. That's what he wanted to push. Like, what would it be like to have a politics where there was no condensation of the subject that we could go to a beyond, you know, in the form of some other rarefied form of intelligence like AI, for example. This functions entirely on the distinction between a positive and negative feedback loop. So a negative feedback loop, like a thermostat, for example, or a kettle, you know, it works against the direction of travel which systems components are going. Mm. A thermostat will start generating heat and then it'll turn it off or it'll apply some compensatory measure negatively against the direction of heat generation, against the direction of travel, so that the temperature stays at a certain level. Some of these are why a lot of kettles have automatic switch-off mechanisms. This little biometallic strip gets with certain heat, bends, breaks a circuit. That's negative feedback. Mm. Negative feedback is very Kantian. It presupposes, it acts on systems that are imperfect, on the idea of gradually Discipline, in a very way of disciplining the systems to gradually regulate how bodies move throughout them. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a, it's a negative just adjusting. I mean, it gets really this idea of steering. If you go too far in one direction, you turn back, negative feedback loop. That's why the game Sea of Thieves is a better way to learn about cybernetics than Cyberpunk 2077, I'll say that. It's purely regulative in the both the Kantian and in the managerial sense. A positive feedback loop is the thing that uses the user's direction of travel in which we're going and accelerates. What's more of this? Given that there's no outside, there's no transcendental horizon of perfect negative regulation, because it's purely regulative, the idea from Leotard that there is no outside means that the only feedback loop in town, which can either get us either through capitalism or out of it, is going to be the positive, the thing that adds on more. The idea that this will essentially, you know, like, like the thermostat, you keep generating more heat and accumulating and accelerating this accumulation of heat, and the whole house burns down. Now, I think this was somewhat optimistic. 
to hedge out all the bets on the positive feedback loop, but that is the logical function. The positive feedback loop can only go for it because total immersion means that we only have more of this. So how do we accelerate more of this so the entire thing melts down or transforms? See, this is where potlatch comes into play, I think, because my reading was that potlatch, and this goes to symbolic exchange and death with Baudrillard, is that potlatch is a way to mitigate the accrual of, of the surplus, which would thereby enable the capital to accru- accumulate in this positive feedback loop. So the potlatch is like Adam described, is this type of like negative feedback loop to try to destroy and equalize the flows of you know desire or what have you within the tribe or social formation. Yeah. I was wondering from anybody here, probably Taylor and Cooper, have there been any strong critiques of this work? Did anybody come back on Leotard in a way that, you know, made him revise his position? We talked about the whole evil book thing, and maybe there's an area of, you know, ambivalence or like ambiguity about like, why is it that he ultimately disavowed this book? Is it because he lost all the friends? Is it because he shat on the proletariat? <laughs> and that's something that I'm surprised we haven't uh, highlighted, which is the catchphrase of this book, hang on tight and spit on me. And <laughs> that, that, that whole thing, right? That the proletarians, they love capitalism. The workers enjoy being pushed to their limits. And hence, that's why the capitalist system is able to recuperate itself is because it trains us on a certain kind of enjoyment of the production of the capitalist flows of desire. Are there any strong critiques that you know of that have come from the Marxist sector anywhere else? Not that I'm aware of. I remember, you know, one of that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to look into the book and I had a difficulty finding like a dearth of people that had engaged with it critically. And so, you know, just trying to find like in terms of a guest to speak about it, that's kind of what led me to doing, you know, the proposing the whole series with Taylor and our friends. But Taylor, well, go ahead. You, you had no difficulty in finding the dearth. <laughs> there is the dearth. There is a I would say two things to what Craig said. First, I didn't see him as shitting on the proletariat. I saw him as yeah, I didn't either. I saw him as shitting on the intellectuals who claimed to be the right. saviors. Exactly. And that that was perhaps more distasteful, right? That we're gonna save you. And the other thing I would say would be perhaps he renounced this precisely because there was no anti Oedipus had, had such a success. It sold like within the first few years couple hundred thousand volumes, you know, it, it was involved specifically in, you know, it, it had a lot of play in Italy. So even outside of France, I know that by the, by the mid to late seventies, when my professor went and studied in France, it was still the talk of the town. So that, that shows it has a kind of longevity too, as well. And so I, if Leotard was expecting that kind to ride that wave, I don't think he got the same kind of feedback. You know, to, to go back to what we were saying, I don't think he had a negative or positive feedback. I think it was just a, it was just a kind of lack. It was an indifference and, you know, give me more love or more disdain, you know, the, he was left in the intemperate zone. And I think that that, that part of that deafening silence may have been, you know, because it was with, you know, the postmodern condition that not only in France, but in, but, you know, in the Anglophone sphere that he really got, that's the text that made him famous. That's the text that sort of, we all have had to read as undergraduates or graduates, you know, in our little Norton anthologies. And 
you know, and then he even renounced some of the shit in there where he was like, yeah, I was talking about science. There was some of the stuff I, I didn't really know about. <laughs> but which is why, because I mean, it, you know, I think that's actually admirable and honest. And, you know, we write most compellingly on the edge of our knowledge. So the other thing I would say, just because Adam brought up Kant, although this is in a, a different direction, one of the interesting things is when he brings up Bataille's, I believe it's a novella, a short story about yeah. Madame Antwarda. And he talks about how one of the things, and this gets back to the feedback, I'll get to it in a second, but this, one of the things that, because he's discussing this sort of, if you will, this trope of prostitution, right? He's looking at, obviously he's using it in his own vein, but he's looking at Marx and this notion of sort of the capitalist is the first pimp and that, you know, this more abominable than any prostitute could ever be and how the, the sort of system of universal exploitation or selling one's body in terms of labor power is this universal prostitution as Marx talks about it. He, he brings up Bataille's Madame Antoine and says, what, it, what is it when she calls herself both a prostitute and a god, what is it that makes her a mad woman? And it's the fact that she enjoys, she gets off on her profession of prostituting. And I was, and he says that uh, the rule of coldness is not respected is on the contrary, the deregulation from frenzy and orgasm that she dares to obtain under cover of her job, not the disjunction between what belongs to the hypothetical lover and what belongs to the client, but the disjunctive bar turning on the disjunctive function itself, intensity being produced without any reference to an outside, but by heating to white hot the operator of this exteriorization. So that's part of that last part I was trying to relate to Adam, great discussion of the difference in feedbacks. But the thing I was thinking of that immediately came to mind, talking about Madame Eduarda sort of enjoying, getting enjoyment out of her prostitution, which obviously relates to the whole hold me tight and spit on me, the sort of the enjoyment of the deterritorialization of the English labor force is the fact that you know, when Lacan writes about Kant and Saad and the two different executioners, it's the Saadian executioner who takes great pleasure and enjoyment in his job, whereas the Kantian executioner is supposed to be dispassionate, completely indifferent. Like, I'm just doing, I'm just, I'm just a cog in the machine. I'm just doing my function. You know, it's, I'm just fulfilling my role, my duty. And so the fact that Madame Andorana has gone beyond, broken the this this framework and gained enjoyment that's part of the madness and i think that's what he locates at the beginning of the chapter in marx's desire in the madness of marx's writings and the continual postponement of coming if you will to the end of the uh, finishing that i think that he kind of sees a similar resonance in those two figures mm. We should probably talk about jouissance a bit as well, because of I think you know if you're looking at the definition of jouissance as an unbearable pleasure, so it'd be akin to let's say you know when you were a kid and like your uncle held you down and tickled you and you like you couldn't it was so intense that you just like you freak out right. So that I think is how I sort of think of jouissance, and maybe there's a distinction to be made between unconscious jouissance physical, like conscious pleasure, unconscious enjoyment, mm -hmm. and how that plays into the feed, positive feedback loop of capital and enjoyment and reproduction. But just some food for thought there. Yeah, he says response is unbearable. There's no libidinal dignity, yada, yada. But it makes sense when you talk about the distinction between response and pleasure is very important because pleasure would be, for Freud at least, in this libidinal economic mode, 
would be about a reduction of tension, whereas jouissance would obviously not be the same, right? It would be this sort of, as you, as he says, unbearable, it'd be an unbearable pleasure beyond life and death, right? It'd be this, you know, you're dead, but you keep on coming kind of yeah. thing. I mean, my, my take has also been on this, I've been on this train of thought about the drive sort of being indifferent to good, like pleasure or pain. And it's about, it's really about the intensity or like achieving that equilibrium and maintaining the band itself. Yeah. And I think some of that filters into the critique of alienation, which we didn't unpack as much as maybe we could have. It somewhat reminds me of Frederick Lordone's theory of alienation. Either everything's alienation or none of it is. And I think that Leotard, he's going to err on the side that, well, it's all alienating in some sense. But really, a better way to say it is it's all intense. That you know, when we see the worker, for example, who affords themselves, you know, some kind of perverse pleasure of maybe even something as simple as just working more and overworking or maybe giving to the boss more than you normally would, all of that factors into what we're talking about here, a libidinal economy, you know, a sort of maintenance of these pulsions, these fluxes yeah, and the breaks. Pros, yeah. And it is capital that we could, you know, attribute to all of that, like, uh, like a body without organs, which that's something that we didn't get into either, which is the inorganic and, and the body without organs. Maybe that's what I'll ask Taylor or Coop. Do you see there being a big difference between what Deleuze and Gattari call a body without organs, like the body of capital, the body of the earth, the body of the despot, because Leotard, he does use some of that language here. In fact, I really like the way that he fleshes out what exactly is meant by the body of the earth. You know, you have the worker, you know, in the case of, you know, classical anthropology, the primitive who exists on planet earth and then comes to identify all of the fruits of earth, whether it be, you know, the literal fruits that are pulled from a tree, a herd of deer or whatever, as being part of this assemblage that they are intimately attached to, N not to introduce something that complicated. This is where I have a challenge with Leotard too, because I think one of the things that I have difficulty with is the notion of debt. Because one of the things that Deleuze and Gattari point out quite nicely, uh, Deleuze specifically in the essay on To Have Done With Judgment, is that under the despotic regime and under capitalism, there is an infinitization of debt. And this is something that is qualitatively different than, let's say, that what we're calling in primitive societies with a potlatch, for example, where, you know, Deleuze identifies those things as finite blocks of debt, mobile blocks of debt. And this goes all the way back to Nietzsche. You know, there is a time in history or there are certain societies in which punishment is undertaken very quickly. You know, you do something wrong, you get slapped on the back, maybe somebody hits you with a stick, you bleed a little bit, hey, that's the end of it, it's all done. But the notion of the infinitization of debt doesn't come until we get the monotheistic God, for example, until we get something like capital, where you could literally exist the entirety of your life in debt. And in fact, we have mechanisms by which to produce that kind of subject. I mean, this is the case for anybody who pays rent and is always on the verge of not being able to pay it. They're effectively in this system of debt. And so I see that as being something that's qualitatively distinct about a mode of production. And this is maybe one of the points that I would challenge Leotard on in his attempt to sort of flatten out the nuances of, of political economy, 
you know, into a libidinal economy. I'm not sure if you're on the same page with me. Do you see any points of convergence or disparity between the body without organs under Deleuze and Gattari, this notion of the inorganic under Leotard? And does, is any of what I said, does that have any cachet, do you think, in terms I of critiquing Leotard? I wonder if, you know, I guess the problem here is like, what's the difference between the libidinal band and the great ephemeral skin and which of those is analogous to the body without organs? You know what I mean? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a little bit murky. The one thing I wanted to bring up relative to debt that I think is important here is the idea of the fetish, right? Mm. Because it's the fetish that I think contributes to this ability for this drive to accumulate debt on behalf of like the consumer because hmm. the thing that and we talked to Alinka Zupancic about this Taylor brought this up very brilliantly was like the fetishist knows very well that like that, like they don't actually seek out their they don't seek out analysis right because they've already found their short of short circuit to you know sating desire or what have you and so they're happy to just sort of reproduce this like new fetish object and consumption and like keep the sort of cycle going and so there's an enjoyment in this like there's a sexual enjoyment in this exchange process or like with like there's a maybe a displacement or a sublimation onto the fetish object i mean that's getting a little bit you know outside of like what Deleuze and Guattari would say but i think it's relevant to think about at least when leotard is to jump off of since coop answered or reply to the second question, the first question about the body of the organs, it's obvious that Leotard seems to be influenced by Deleuze and Guattari's discussion of body of the organs when he kind of talks about the body of capital is sterile, it engenders nothing, it exceeds the capacity of theoretical discourse as unification. And, you know, this is the same kind of terms that Deleuze and Guattari will, will talk about the body of the organs as sterile, unengendered, sort of it it has nothing to do with you know it's a mul it's a multiplicity without totality without unification and the listen Guattari bring up a quote from Marx where they talk about capital becomes this mystic being since all of labor's social productive forces appear to be due to capital rather than labor as such and seem to issue from the womb of capital itself. This is how they understand the body of the organs in each of the the sort of social machines, the primitive territorial machine, the spotted machine, and the sort of the capitalist machine. There's each has this body, the body of the earth, the body of the despot, the body of capital as this unengendered quasi cause that arrogates to itself the productive forces as though it were the source. So definitely see Leotard kind of thinking through what he calls the inorganic body as related to the BWO and how there is this tension between, on the one hand, the little girl Marx's desire for this artistic unity of the entirety of his writings before him, before he can sort of release them. But this, as we know, this unity never comes. It's what Leotard keeps referring to as the non finito, it's the postponement and the, the sort of the enjoyment in the deferral, the enjoyment in the edging, if you will, that Marx experiences. I mean, he even comes, he says, we might describe this postponement libidinally later, which he does in the very first section of chapter five on Chinese erotics, where he goes very deep into this movement of sort of how the man, you know, fucking the woman is sort of thrusting nine times, then, then sort of placing his thumb under his urethra to keep from coming. And he's trying to suck in all of the yang and, you know, all of this. And I think that's very much the kind of rhythm, the kind of sort of post 
profound enjoyment that he is thinking of with, with Marx. I kind of got off, well, not to play, I got off on a tangent there, but, but yeah, I do think that the inorganic body that, that Leotard is referring to is very much influenced by not only the way that Marx describes it, right? Because the womb of capital would be the sterile womb, as we know, but, but this question of Marx, the prosecutor Marx trying to give birth to the child socialism through the means of sterile pornographic capital and how this is a impossibility, not just in terms of the content of the critique, but in the very form, this sort of impossibility. Yeah, it's interesting too how Leotard juxtaposes the fascination of old man Marx with the project of trying to circumscribe capital theoretically, whereas the little girl wants to stave off that fascination, right? The risk is to, I suppose, is falling into the very polymorphous perversity that that capital manifests. But at the same time, you know, to create some sort of kill switch or stop within the system of that assemblage, not to go overboard. And this kind of takes us back to the accelerationist thing. It's almost as if, well, if we could take out of the Marxist assemblage this one piece that ordinarily keeps us going from over the precipice or keeps us locked into this interminable fascination with capital, maybe we could achieve the kind of schizophrenic character of capital as such. But I mean, that was just a sort of uh, a flash and insight that I had when he made that sort of juxtaposition. I'm not sure if that's the direction that he wants to go politically. And I don't know if that's how it's been extrapolated exactly by the accelerationists, but something like that seems to be there. I mean, I think the cathedral is maybe an outgrowth of this perspective from land in terms of they want to code the flows. They want to reduce the, you know, it wants to be there. We want a stable state, right? But capital cannot exist in a state. If capital goes stable, it, it dies. It has to right. be in constant motion. It has to be in a constant reproductive process or it just won't, it'll die. And so I think maybe it's like the strategy for Leotard and you know, perhaps even Deleuze and Watari is like this demolition. Like we have to burn the old growth forest down sort of to, to some extent to, to generate, you know what I mean? But again, even that I think sort of falls into this creative destruction element of capitalism in which it thrives upon. So, you know, this is where land might have some, you know, this is a question. This is a problem, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's also very much a methodological take. It's, it's very much anti-Hegelian, but in the same way, it's anti-Hegelian by being the problematic of the way that, that Marx uses Hegel, which is Hegelian dialectics are always meant to be retrospective. The owl of Minerva takes flight only at the coming of the dusk. And the thing about what Marx is doing is he's doing this dialectical, okay, depends on how you read it, it probably is dialectical sort of unfolding of capital. And of course, well, he has to keep going. He, he doesn't get to the end of capital because capital's still here. He's not doing retrospective operations. So he has to keep going. And if he ever finished, then well, that means capital would be in a way kind of finished. The era would be a sort of closed, a closed totality that he can reflect upon rather than the open, all-encompassing totality that's swarming over the rest of the world. So it is, that's where the enjoyment of Kills Country, as you were saying, Taylor, about it is pretty much an edging. It's deplete, if the completed object comes, then so does Marx, and then the entire operation is over. The, it then becomes retrospective. The futurity of it, the, the sense of the future is the thing that's keeping him going here. And of course, with land, I mean, this was basically, for him, the only way out is, you know, that cyberspace would dissolve all of our identities. 
and we would go into sort of purely nomadic virtual space, these new Amazons. And yeah, the idea was eventually this would melt down the entire system. And even Bataille, to some extent, thinks of this when it comes to the idea of revolution as a great expenditure of surplus energy that is not rationally executed, a great ritual, a great carnival of revolutionary violence in a very similar way to the festival which reclaims the sovereignty of the working class. Um, this is not a rational thing for Bataille, and it won't be a rational thing for Land, mm. and it won't be a rational thing for Leotard. I mean, when why would revolutions be rational? Exactly. You know, I mean, I think social media goes here too, because, you know, you always hear people complaining about social media and what it's done. It's decoded the flows, like it's created such a deterritorialization of like, you know, QAnon is part of this, right? Like, I think that's important to wrestle with just to build off of what Adam was saying relative to cyberspace and the decoding of flows. Like it is a terror, there is a certain terror <laughs> element involved in the minds of some, I think. And we didn't mention this too, maybe Adam just did in passing, but when the revolutionary machine kicks off in the form of the Communist Party, what Lyotard identifies as the problem with communism as it has been realized, very close to what Bataille thinks too, is that what the Communist Party wants is not the end of the revolution. What it ends up doing is engendering this priority to turn productivity into an end and not a means in itself. And therefore, you know, it becomes a, an, a permanent revolution, an interminable revolution that in some ways mirrors the axiom of capital, but of course never achieves the end that it wants to achieve in a very similar method that Bataille critiques Stalinism of his day. There was something I didn't know if you guys noticed when he's talking about the little girl marks of the dissertation, right, of 1851 before sort of the things that Marx is well known for. There is an interest in chronology in Marx's publications where some of the earliest stuff gets published last, right? And not to go into sort of the stuff that Cooper and I have delved into with Thomas Nail. I know you guys have had Thomas Nail on in terms of Marx in motion. That's a, that could be a whole other episode. But Leotard calls little girl marks alice i don't know if you guys saw that and i, yeah, I did thinking, not i did I yeah, nice thinking, catch i was That's thinking about great. how you know in deliz's logic of sense in the very first series he's talking about how the objective problematics that lewis carroll sends alice down the rabbit hole in involves the the loss of the proper name the loss of identity and that this is sort of bound up in if you will the sort of the tensions that are pulling at the prosecutor marks, not only to sort of give birth to the proletariat, but on the other hand, sort of get up on the cross and take up all of this suffering, this theoretical discourse is the cross to bear for Marx and this sort of theological Christian vision as Leo Carr keeps pointing out. And so I think that this splitting, this bisexual assemblage that Leotard is sort of you know, sort of working through as conceptual persona in a certain way, we can see that it is sort of Alice in Wonderland losing her identity. The desire name Marx is sort of dissolving any one, any one Marx we could point out, even if we were Althusserians to say there's early Marx, there's the Marx of the, there's the transitional Marx of the theses, there's the late Marx. I think that in, in Leotard's eyes, he wants to kind of sort of contaminate and scramble those easy identities. 
We're past the hour at which we started, which is fine. But I wanted to give voice to anybody who hasn't spoken yet, including our patrons. Sam, you know, amidst all of this, is there anything that kind of stood out to you or maybe something that we didn't cover or, I don't know, you wanted to call back something that we discussed earlier? Well, I didn't give myself enough time to read the whole thing, actually. I ended up sort of halfway through it and then thinking this is going to require more than one reading oh, yeah. <laughs> to make any sense of. And I think I was speaking to Taylor on, on, on Twitter last night or something about it, saying, this is, you know, he is, Leotard's kind of, he's almost taking the piss out of himself when he's talking about the delayed gratification in, in the way he's pre presenting this. is like, it's hysterical. There's lots of sort of tangential like leaps that he makes into different subject areas and he's kind of he doesn't really it's, he doesn't present it in a very coherent way and i think that's intentional also something someone says in the post-capitalist desire lecture the student who's doing the reading this is student one in the book talks about that he does not show if he's later being sarcastic or not straight away and it, that that did come across to me that there's one reading of this for me oh and i'm you know i'm not I'm, i haven't read it much but there's one reading of, is there a possible reading of this where he is just taking, he's just mocking his colleagues, essentially. He's just not, he's not, he, when he keeps talking about, if you take him face value when he's not, he's talking about not making a critique of Marx, right? None of this is about Marx. This is all about other people's interpretations of Marx. This is all about how he's read other people and what they put onto Marx, like Alice with the little girl and the old man. And obviously there's lots of stuff on Embroyard and very So basically, could it be read as the entire chapter is just talking about what other people have imposed onto Marx and their desires for what for Marx's output, for example. And that's, again, part of the postponement thing. They're all invested in it because they want to keep producing theory. They want to keep talking about Marx. They want to keep it, keep this rolling. Their objective maybe ostensibly revolution but they after 68 he's seen that that didn't come about the intellectuals didn't cause that to happen even through their best efforts to engage with workers perhaps felt patronized so he's kind of going through this whole critique of french communism much more so than marx throughout it he's saying this isn't a critique of marx this is a critique of you so that's kind of how i read it on face value and so I mean, in some sense, it is sarcastic, doesn't in a lot of ways. I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting here is the positive feedback loop of what is theory engender? It engenders oftentimes more theory, no like results, no effects. And I mean, this is something that, you know, is very directly addressed by Deleuze and Guattari. But I think, you know, to speak to your question more pointedly, I think that there's a multiplicity of things going on there's a multiplicity of readings you can have like to go get sort of sound deridian you know here there's so much going on i think there is like there is a resentment towards marxist right i think you know there is some feelings like some personal shit going on here relative to out the say and sort of the marxist at this time and i think you know he sort of feels like a very spurned marxist at on one level but again then you have to look there's a literary angle going on here there's a critique going on there's not just one you know one disc way to sort of characterize the text it's kind of like this open body you know for you to sort of examine and pick up little things here and there from i think there's an interesting shift that leotar performs when you're because one of the things you may ask not just whether he's being serious or sarcastic or some kind of blend or if he sort of 
moves in and out of those registers from irony to humor to sarcasm to to anger, right? He he will say, I'm gonna have a moment of anger and deal with these beefs. But he has this moment, we think of it in a clinical sense as almost a hysteria, where he moves from a we intellectuals, what is it that we are trying to what where is our commiseration coming from and trying to kind of moralistically produce salvation for the workers. But then he shifts to a you. You intellectuals are doing this moralizing bullshit and it's we, we the capitalized. So he does this interesting hysterical move where he is performing both sort of, uh, yes, I am a part of the university assemblage and yes, I am the an, an intellectual producing this theoretical or anti-theoretical or quasi sort of you know, Zeno theoretical writings that has its own jouissance and its own intensities and its own means of getting off. But then he performs also the side of the capitalized and the workers, and he's able to sort of perform this shift from the we intellectuals to you intellectuals. And he's sort of like sort of hopping around on the libidinal band in terms of subject positions. And that, and he doesn't do that consistently throughout this chapter, at least, but that in that moment early on in the chapter, this performing of subject positions is, is very indicative of a kind of, again, a kind of performed hysteria, like in dreams where we are, we, our identifications are with every position in the, in, in the characters in the dream. It's very much like, I mean, I said it in the chat, the idea of, I mean, imagine like Marx writing Capital Volume 1. He's getting to the end of the, he's getting to the end of the text. He's getting to the end of the manuscript. And then imagine if the revolution suddenly started. He'd be like, For fuck's not yet, please. Yeah. The book's coming out soon. It's, you know, it's like, you need this, please. I've made this just for you. It's like a refusal of hospitality in a way. I nearly finished Volume 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. It, 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 it's, the, it's the unending project. I mean, this is also very much, this is the academic as well. I mean, I mean, you know, I think one, I think there really should be advertising academia, more honestly, in the sense of most of the work is unpaid. It is purely self-capitalization, reformulating various papers, various different journals, according to various style guys, cutting in the same paper, getting it sent back and forth. And it, it is all free labor. And, and it's also, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, it goes back to the original root of the word passion, really, which involves suffering. A passion project is a project of suffering at the same time. It's like, why do you academics do this all the time? Yeah, why do we? Put, I mean, even the work we put into like a you know, podcast, there is a kind of sense of enjoyment. It's like we, we haven't done a podcast on this thinker yet. So, you know, can, you, can you put the you know, people put the pitchforks down, stop erecting those bloody barricades, and go get back in your house and listen to this goddamn podcast? Like, there is the kind of desire there to be this overwhelming, capturing figure in thought. I mean, this is this is the Hegelian impulse. His History has to stop because otherwise he can't write about it or has to end somewhat. It is just a complete, it is the call to the theorists to understand not only their own capitalization, but the fact in a way they are raw dogging capital through this constant and unending deferral of the work to be done. I mean, it's why that's why academics have to be deadlines because after that, they have the little petty more. The thing is archived, ossified, dead. You can't edit it anymore. You can't put the activity into it anymore. And it's thinking about writing itself that becomes ossified, which is why the limits of Marx's thought are still so fuzzy, because the thing that closes off Marx's thought is the fact that he dies. Yeah. There is no closure to the system. Marx no, couldn't no complete the system. Yep. Yeah. Marx could not complete the system of German idealism, and that's why he died, essentially. Do you want to make room for Fisherian futurologist? Did you want to address any concerns out loud? I threw you a message in the chat. 
Otherwise, I think we'll kind of wind it down soon. I'm not sure if it's on topic. I just thought that uh, identifying with every character in your dream was an interesting observation, if that is what you do. And it's something I thought about a lot uh, at the end of last year, but I, I don't really know what I think about it right now. So I have to read what I thought about it. <laughs> it seems to accord with how Leotard is thinking of the sort of the, the hyper activity of the white hot libidinal band. And it's only when there's a disintensification that we can sort of say there's a this and that and make these hardline exclusionary and ors, but as he says, instead of the silence of the comma. And so there is the sense in which is shifting of perspectives without really calling it out or pointing it out is kind of indicative of a text like this, that he would be able to do this without even making it a thing that he does very often. You know, he's, he's able to shift these perspectives and these, he's able to put in perspectives from different positions in ways that don't nail him down. And I think that's precisely how he kind of thinks of positional dispositifs, right? Where the, for Leotard with the heightening of intensification that he calls for, it is about privileging, never privileging sort of position in a way that it ossifies into a party that then would staunch the flows of desire, but, but being able to also tap into movement, but also not merely privileging movement. Right. He's, he's, it's always going to be like that, right? Where he's not going to privilege any one binary or the other, which is, I think maybe what Cooper was kind of getting at in this Derridian sense of, you know, not reinstilling a sort of hierarchy in the binary hinge. So when you dream and let's say you dream, you are in a room and there are, I don't know, your grandfather and your best friend and someone you don't know. And you have a hysteric dream. Do you dream from the first person and then you switch the first person perspective to the other person and then you see yourself? Or do you dream it more as a cinematic experience where the camera is going around you all? Or how does it work? I think that for Freud, the question of identifications isn't necessarily about questions of perspective. It would be more about the question from whence the wish fulfillment stems, from the navel of the dream, where are the different sort of points of view, if you will, they're more abstract than necessarily any kind of visual coordinate, right? That's just kind of how the dream works. But I assume that for certain dreamers, uh, because Freud is thinking about ways in which different dreamers have different ways of focalizing and distorting and condensing the phenomena in the dream work, I assume that for certain highly visual dreamers, that could be a way in which that would go about. But I don't think for Freud, he wants to make any hard or fast distinctions for how one could be occupying the positions of desire in the dream that would seemingly be disparate and yet would kind of all stem from the inner conflicts being played out. Yeah, I think from a Jungian perspective, if this makes any difference, because I think actually Deleuze, Deleuze draws on on Jung, I think in the what ultimately becomes Deleuze and Gattari's schizoanalysis in some sense, is that you would never over-identify with any one of the archetypes or even identify with any one particular at all. It's more about navigating a field of intensities. And I think that's what Leotard does pretty successfully here. And even though, like I said, we're erring on the side of this sort of schizophrenic movement, it's almost as if he heard 
Dula Zingatari as a metal band. And he's like, I'm going to make the new metal version of this. And he does that here. But he never airs so greatly on the side as not to stop and slow down and get into this sort of figural mode of expressing himself. And then once again, leaping back on to this sort of tensorial tangent that takes him into the new thing. So yeah, in some sense, like that's something that I kind of took note of, especially since I'm writing on DreamWork a little bit these days. Well, with that said, we've gone for quite some time, about an hour and a half. Maybe we'll shut it down. I just want to say thanks to everybody who showed up. First of all, the patrons for supporting us and those who come here today to you know interact in the discussion, Adam from our podcast, but most importantly, Cooper and Taylor, who took time out of their weekend to be on the podcast with us yet again here on Zero Books. I just want to say thanks to you guys. You do great work. I'm going to put all the links and stuff to their podcast in the show notes. And also I'll put a link to this, the Wicked Leotar series, because I think you guys really get into the weeds, especially with respect to the first and second chapters. You know, that gives you a sense of the ontology of Leotard, which undergirds a lot of this analysis of Marx here. So I just want to say thank you to you guys. Thanks for having us to win. Yeah, yeah it was, I've been edging this whole time, so I'm, <laughs> re- I'm ready to release. It was great to come on, Craig and Adam. Thanks for, as always, it's nice to be able to interact with you guys. I'm glad to be able to be on the forum with you. I know Cooper and I were excited about this. We're always happy to talk about Leotar. And if you would like, can I read the last few sentences of the book? Absolutely. <laughs> we'll take it right. out. So spoiler alert. So I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase the or I'm gonna cut short the paragraph. The last paragraph starts. We need not leave the place where we are. We need not be ashamed to speak in a state-funded university, right? They publish go commercial, love a woman, a man, and live together with them. There is no good place. The private universities are like the others, savage publications like civilized ones. And no one love can prevail over jealousy. No need for declarations, manifestos, organizations, provocations. No need for exemplary actions. Set dissimulation to work on behalf of intensities. Invulnerable conspiracy. Headless, homeless, with neither program nor project. Deploying a thousand cancerous tensors in the bodies of signs. We invent nothing. That's it. The very roots of evil of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, a pure violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.